Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Bonjour et bienvenue à la bataille des albums. Chante-moi, je suis musique. Je suis une bœuf. <laughs> I mean, it would be un bœuf because beef is masculine, but okay. Uh, hello, Kevin. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well. Happy New Year. Merry New Year. Welcome to 2022. <laughs> it's a lot like late 2021 <laughs> from where I'm sitting. <laughs> I mean, it's almost the same as last week. (laughs) (laughs) Almost, but not quite. (laughs) Right, okay. Hello, everyone. Hope you had a good new year. This is the concluding part in the first clash of our Electronica season. Last week, I took us through the revolutionary and groundbreaking Autobahn by Kraftwerk from 1974. To pair with that, Kev, just remind people what you're going through today. I will be going through Oxygen by Laser Nonce, uh, Jean-Michel Jarre. <laughs> well, you've started us off on a on a note where you've really been impartial as to what you think of this album. <laughs> but okay, fine. Uh, it's pronounced Oxygen, by the way. And I know I started us off on this note because I said Oxygen. When, anyway, Oxygen, it's French. I, I was doing a Brittany uh, pronunciation. <laughs> Uh, right, before we get on to uh, Jean-Michel Jarre's breakthrough album, Video Killed the Radio Star Time, and it is your choice. It is, and it's same as it ever was. <laughs> same as it ever was. Very good. Go on, what are we doing? This week's choice is the iconic, the legendary, the incredibly influential once-in-a-lifetime video by Talking Heads, co-directed by Tony Basil and David Byrne of the band. Uh, so, do you know who Tony Basil is? He's uh, Dave Times' uh, cousin. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, so, firstly, Tony Basil is not a he. Tony Basil is a she, and Tony Basil is of Hey Mickey, you're so fine, you're so fine, you're by my mind. Hey Mickey, fame. That Tony Basil. Oh right, okay. She choreographed and co-directed the video. Fair enough. As you said. Anyway, take us through the video. <laughs> so, the video in itself is David Byrne. Essentially, they, they blue screen him and his dance moves, and they're sort of replicated in the in the background. It's it's an incredibly famous video, so you've probably seen it. But what was interesting when I was reading about it is I wasn't aware of how much detail they went into in sort of what they plan to do. So apparently, they studied preachers, evangelists, African tribes, Japanese cults their sort of movements and behaviours to incorporate it into David Byrne's performance. And he works with uh, Tony Basil to sort of work out roughly what what he's going to do. And then they set up the camera and just film it. Then they take the recording and kind of sync whatever he was up to and try and get it to work with the music. And it does. It, it, it works incredibly well. 
Yeah, the the movements are as the video progresses increasingly frenzied, increasingly spasmodic to the point of convulsion. Mm-hmm. And like you said, paying attention to evangelists, to, to various religious uh, ceremonies and, and rituals, uh, some of which are interspersed into the footage in the video in the background. It's um, I mean, David Byrne was a remarkable artist. Anyway, we are, we will do some talking heads on Album Clash at some point. Mm-hmm. It's a great song. Well, the, I mean, the, the bass work alone. Oh God! It's just it's brilliant. The synth work, the bass work, the guitar part. It's, it's a great song. Okay, let's just get in. You know, let's get that out of the way. Yeah. And yeah, the, the well, so I've got a quote from Tony Basil. In fact, she told, again, it's Uncut. I've got a lot of quotes from Uncut magazine. Anyway, Tony Basil said, David kind of choreographed himself. I set up the camera, put him in front of it, and asked him to absorb those ideas, as you said. Then I left the room so he could be alone with himself. I came back, looked at the videotape, and we chose physical moves that worked with the music. I just helped to stylize his moves a little. So... You will note through the video that he gets, as I said, progressively more frenzied, but he also seems to be sweating more and more, like he's Lee Evans doing a comedy performance. (laughs) Until I was reading about the video, I'd always thought that was part of makeup and stuff. That They'd made him look like, no, 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 no. He was just like proper going off and sweating buckets. He's just properly going for it. exactly. Uh, apparently in 2021, Rolling Stone, in, in 2021, in the past, that's years ago, <laughs> <laughs> Rolling Stone named it the 81st best music video of all time. It's a, I mean, it's a cracking music video, and it is, if you've seen it, you know it. And if you haven't seen it, we will tweet the link out, so go and check it out, because it's great. Indeed. Okay, that's Video Kill the Radio Star. Shall we start going through Oxygen? Indeed. Over to you. So... Oxygen is the third studio album by Jean-Michel Jarre and was his first album not intended for use as a soundtrack. It was released in France first in December 1976 on the Disque Dreyfus uh, record label and had an international release in around the middle of next year and did you know, remarkably well, particularly, as we've said, in, in the UK and across, across Europe, really. Less successful in the US, but, you know, it's a it's a harder market to break. And so if you really want to delve into the background of the album, there's a really good interview that he does with The Guardian about how how he made the album. So he, he talks about when he was a teenager, he played in rock bands, and he he wanted to make interesting, different music. So, like, he was sort of he would use a tape machine that his grandfather gave him and record his guitar and try and process it and mix it, mess about with it, and try and get sounds that were a bit different. And like, he, you know, he enjoyed he enjoyed like being rebellious in that way and people saying, "What is this crap?" But he'd done sort of production work and managed to set up his own studio in in his kitchen. So I just want to read a quote about that. He said, I'd done production work for some rock artists, earning enough to set up a studio in my kitchen. I didn't have much equipment, though, just a few guitar pedals and my first synthesizer, as you just said, which looked like a telephone exchange. I realised that using a tape machine to delay the sound that came out of one loudspeaker created a huge sense of space. I wanted to read that quote because that last line is very important for the album we're about to go through. 
And, you know, like, again, the, the Korg mini pops, it's very important in this album. Oh, yeah. So just to step us back a little bit. So Jean-Michel Jarre, he is the son of French composer Maurice Jarre, who has composed quite a lot of famous film soundtracks, uh, including Dr. Zhivago, Lawrence of Arabia and Ghost. His mother, Francette Peugeot, she was a heroine of the uh, French Resistance, and she was a concentration camp survivor. Wow! So he had he had quite the interesting, you know, lineage, if you like. Wow! Um, I, I was not aware of that. <laughs> so, just referring back to his uh, Korg mini pops, the quote that I really enjoy from him because it is so low rent. Uh, so my primitive drum machine, a Korg Mini Pops, was the sort of thing people played in pubs. But by using tape, I could make it play two preset rhythms at the same time, creating cool beats. <laughs> part four, which became iconic, was a mixture of slow rock and rock, whilst part six combined rumba and bossa nova. <laughs> it is low rent. Uh, genuinely, genuinely. One of my favourite things about this album is that the rhythms are literally created by pressing the preset rhythm buttons on the keyboard. Like I used to do when I was eight. <laughs> it's brilliant. Look, when I was in year seven music class, I used to just press the demo button because it usually had the Lemmings theme tune on it. <laughs> exactly. It's brilliant. As he's... But I'm going to try and bring something serious out of that. This speaks to exactly what these guys were doing. They were experimenting with with the technology that was becoming available at the time. They were saying, well, what can I do with this? Let's stick down some sellotape on this. And so he's, I'm going to, there's a little addendum to that quote. He says later on in that same interview, he says, it's funny. At first, the album was played in hi-fi shops as an example of state-of-the-art sound. I didn't tell them I made it in my kitchen with sellotape. <laughs> <laughs> And you could try and trivialise it and say that they were just dicking around with what was available to them and seeing what stuck. And that is innovation, if you ask me. So he records it in his kitchen and then he he goes around various record companies trying to flog it and no one's having it at all. And the, the quote, again, in the Guardian piece is that, so you have no singles, no drummer, no singer, the tracks last 10 minutes, and it's French. <laughs> and even his own mother said, why did, you, why did you name your album after a gas and put a skull on the cover? <laughs> Fuck off, man. You're supposed to support me. I mean, in terms of going for the for the commerciality, it's it's hardly going for the um for the soft center of pop, really. Uh, no, with a but. Well, yeah, we'll get to that. Well, this is a time, as we mentioned last week, of tubular bells, of prog rock being huge. Were you even talking about at this time that, you know, you've got War of the Worlds coming out, which is like a fella talk, like essentially a dramatic performance over music. Did you just describe Richard Burton, the man with perhaps the greatest voice in the history of voices, with the possible exception of Orson Welles, as a fella? (laughs) Burton. I mean, do you know what my favourite thing about Orson Welles is? My favourite fact about Orson Welles. Do you know what his last performance was in a feature film? 
Oh, right, in a feature film, because I'm sure he was in some kind of advert or something just before he died, which was fairly awful. The very last thing he did before he died, he did the narration on the animated movie Transformers the Movie in 1986. (laughs) Which, by the way, is, always has been, and always will be, by far and away the best Transformers movie because A, it's not directed by Michael yes. fucking Bay. Yes. And B, it's fucking brilliant. Yes, it, fo- it follows a structure of storytelling that isn't kablamo. Exactly. And it's got Orson fucking Wells in it. <laughs> yeah. Fucking Citizen Kane um, in, a, in a cartoon about robots. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which is even more bizarre than fucking Vito Corleone being Superman's Al fella. <laughs> <laughs> or, or actually, the fella from The Long Good Friday being Super Mario. <laughs> <laughs> See, I actually thought you were going to go with being handcuffed to a cartoon rabbit for, a, for an entire film. But you went Super Mario. You went even higher. I went Super Mario on it. <laughs> oh, excellent stuff. Anyway. Okay, we probably should get back to the, to the album. Okay, so you, you mentioned the fact that he was trying to flog it around record companies and was struggling. Yes. So through an old acquaintance that he'd basically been to music school with Helen Dreyfus, who was married to Francis Dreyfus of Disc Dreyfus. She persuaded her husband to get on board with it. He produced an initial run of 50,000 copies. And again, this is another quote from that same article. Jean-Michel Jarre said, at first people took it back to the shops because they thought the white noise was a fault in the manufacturing process. But the biggest radio stations in France and Britain started playing the whole album, and then the BBC used it in a documentary. So that reminds me of when my dad bought a tape version of the Queen album, The Miracle, which finishes with Show Must Go On, and it has that repeat ending, and he thought his tape was fucked the first time he listened to it. (laughs) Brilliant. Okay, I've I've got nothing more on oxygen because I've I've already started. <laughs> well, we've we've somewhat digressed throughout this. So I've got a couple of things actually. I've got a couple of things. So so one is we actually spoiled this a bit last week. We talked about it quite a lot last week actually. But here's the actual quote that Jar talks about with relation to Autobahn. He says, nobody knew about synthesizers back then. When I first heard Kraftwerk's Autobahn, I thought they were a Californian band trying to imitate the Beach Boys. But I still saw Autobahn as a pop song with vocals, and I was into electronic music with no singing. Right, okay, let's just dig into that. You thought they were a Californian band. What, singing in fucking German? No, you never, so piss off. (laughs) I still saw Autobahn as a pop song. Yes, that's why it was so influential. That's the whole point. As we spoke last week at length, that's why it struck a chord. Because the longer version of the word pop is popular. (laughs) Quite. 
And the last thing, I was into electronic music with no singing. Yes, as were Kraftwerk, as is clearly shown on the other four tracks that adorn side two of the same album that you've just spoken about. I, and I don't understand why he's why that is such a dismissive quote, because there is clearly an influence, as I said last week, to what he does here. Just say, I heard it, I thought it was great. I didn't want to cre- recreate exactly the, the sound they'd done, but I thought some of the stuff they'd done was really great. I just Why be so dismissive? I don't get it. It's a refusal to accept that, do you know what, they got there first. And you know, like you're not you're not saying that shit about Mike Oldfield. You're not saying that uh-huh. that shit about you know other people who've come be- who've come before. Yeah, it's just that mm-hmm. they were non-native English speakers who got there before. Yeah, and had laid the pathwork. And you don't like the fact that they got there first. Yes and no. Uh... Yes and no. I'm going to come back to this later on. That's what I'm going to say. Okay, we can discuss it a little bit more later, but given that we've been, like when we talked about uh, Kraftwerk and there were the obvious references to the Second World War, if a Dutch band had got there first, <laughs> would Jean-Michel Jarre been as, as pissed off is what I'm going to ask. I 100% agree. I think you're spot on with that. I, I think there is a, an element to that. I think there's something else as well, which, again, I, I, I want to leave something for the listeners to stay tuned into, basically. So I want to come back to it as we go through the reviews. Okay. The very last thing I do want to talk about, we've talked last week about Jean-Michel Jarre's reputation for his live performances. This album was composed and recorded very much with live performance in mind. He told... Keyboard Magazine, again, I've said before, a fantastic name for publication. In 1978, he said, I want to be able to do the music by myself on tour and have it sound just like it did in the studio. So it was very much in his thought process that I want to be able to recreate these sounds when I'm on stage. Okay. So, um, Tim, how did uh, you first discover the album? So I have known this album for a very long time. This is another one that I was introduced to by my brother. He got massively into Jean-Michel Jarre in the mid-80s, around the time that Rendezvous was released in 1986. Uh, And so I heard a lot of Jean-Michel Jarre's music around sort of mid to late 80s, including Oxygen. I hadn't listened to it for 20 plus years until... Four or five years ago, I was wandering around an antique store. One of the stalls had a, had a few records. I was leafing through them. Oh, here's a copy of Oxygen. Eight quid. Thanks very much. I love that. Not listened to it for so long, but eight quid. Why not? Took it home, listened to it. And yeah, I was like, you know, this is really good. I've not listened to this for so long. It was like reconnecting with part of my youth, part of my childhood that I had forgotten about, I guess. So yeah, have 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 revisited it a few times since then. But yeah, I, I was probably five years old when I first heard this album. So a long history. I'm guessing for you, considering what you said a couple of weeks ago, that uh, your history is somewhat more recent. <laughs> Very much so. So the track part four 
I was aware of through uh, Sky's Champions League football coverage. But <laughs> um, the the actual album itself, this is the first time I've listened to it. So it was a completely new experience for me. Okay. And I think that's, if I'm right, that's the first time that's been the case for you on Album Clash. There's been a few that have been my first listens, but I think this is the first yes. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, it's a, yeah, it is, it is the first new album. Re- I'll, I'll be really, really interested to hear what you've got to say about this. I've got some things. <laughs> okay. Artwork, I guess. Okay. So uh, the background to the artwork. So in 1976... Jean-Michel Jarre was in a art gallery and was looking at an exhibition of the of the work of Michel Granger. Granger, I'm not sure how you say it. Yeah, I'm glad you had that confusion over the name. I'm sorry, this is a complete irrelevance to the like. Michel, it is Michel Granger. Like this, you know, Granger. Yeah, I don't yeah. get it. Right, sorry, carry on. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, so the, he he saw the um, the painting Oxygen at the exhibition and he loved it and he bought it and he at the time he told Granger that he would love to use it as an album cover and he did <laughs> yeah it's it's as simple as that he saw it yep he liked it he bought it and then he went I'll stick that on the front of my album yeah yeah exactly so so the picture itself it depicts the planet Earth. And the surface is being peeled away, and within is a skull. So apparently that reflects some of the themes that Jean-Michel Jarre wanted to explore in the album about environmental issues and, and, and ecological issues. Uh, so just I just want to read a quote from, and again it's from that Guardian article, from uh, Granger, Granger. He said, that picture is the best known of all my work. It's my Mona Lisa. But I don't feel like it belongs to me anymore. It belongs to anyone who loves the music of Jean-Michel Jarre. Well, no, it literally belongs to Jean-Michel Jarre because he bought it. That's how buying things works. Unless you buy an NFT. <laughs> Unless you buy an NFT, in which case that's not how it works. You're literally buying a receipt for a particular copy of a digital image, which means you own fuck all and you've been conned out of your money. It's a fucking scam. Sorry. <laughs> Control C. That's all you need. Exactly. Yeah. Anyone that thinks NFTs are a thing, it's not. You're being scammed. Fuck off. Right click. It's not that hard. <laughs> you don't even have to right click. If you've got your phone and you're on Twitter, just click the three dots and click save. It's just, it's bollock. Anyway, come on. <laughs> anyway, we're not even get like, we're not even going to start on crypto, which is like the ultimate fucking pyramid scheme. I was going to say, Ponzi would be proud. <laughs> Bernie Madoff's gutted. <laughs> okay, should we move on? Well, just just on the artwork before we do move on, it's a really good album cover, but it's not Autobahn, is it? No, it's a very interesting piece of art, but the Autobahn cover is far more memorable. It is indeed. Okay, should we start going through the album then? Fine, if you must. Okay, so we commence the album with the imaginative name Oxygen Part One. <laughs> so, can I just say, this is a thing with Jean-Michel Jarre and all his albums, okay? It's always, he names the album and it's Part One, Part Two, Part Three. So, okay, I get it, but it's his thing, so fine. Yeah, it, it may be his thing. It's a shit thing. <laughs> 
I mean, uh, the show in your hand. <laughs> the show in your hand. <laughs> Go on, get into it. Come on. Okay. So we start off with a synth intro, very futuristic sounding, and a gradual introduction to the differing sounds and themes within the piece. And it has a mellifluous sound to it, sagging in and out different sounds and different themes going on throughout the song. Yep. Okay, so... I would say, whilst it's very different sounding to Autobahn, and I mean the, the song uh, Autobahn, it, it still has a beauty in its simplicity. I So I, I'm going to say I like this as a starter. I like it a lot as a starter. No, I, th- I think that it, it gives you an oral landscape that you can uh, lose yourself in. And I, 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 think, I think it's done really well. Yeah, agreed. So... Again, I'm going to try and decompose it a little bit. Right from the off, you've got that ethereal, atmospheric, swirling sound that pervades the whole album, really. You've got a quite haunting theremin-like melody that comes in around about two minutes. Mm-hmm. It's very, very cinematic. You talked about about landscape creation. I, I think you're absolutely right. I'm glad you used the phrase cinematic because I made a note saying... I get a a very a clockwork orange feel to the sounds in the second half of the piece. <laughs> it's so close. <laughs> uh, I put Blade Runner. <laughs> <laughs> to me, the second half of it, once that big booming synth comes in, it is pure Vangelis. It is pure Blade Runner. But I similar, I get clockwork orange fine as well. It is exactly that. It's retro futurism. Yeah, it it does. It has it has a. It's an old and new piece of music. Like, and obviously, I'm coming at it completely blind. And it it was it was an interest. It was an interesting start. And there was there's a lot going on in that first track that certainly holds your attention and bring and draws you in. Exactly, uh, which is why I've said a captivating start. <laughs> <laughs> I think this album, and we'll delve into it. I, I certainly found it. It's it's quite. It's much harder to describe that it has that ethereal, as you said. And I think Vangelis is a really good comparison. It creates a soundscape, but it doesn't feel rooted in anything. Whereas Autobahn felt much more of a piece, of a place, of a time. And that I found it harder to describe stuff in in relation to this album because of that. <laughs> Interesting. I agree, but I think there's a there's an explanation for that, and that is quite a simple one. So, as as I mentioned, his father Maurice Jarre is a classical composer. Is composed film scores. I think this is this is written as if it's a a symphony, if you like, a classical composition in movements in six movements, and therefore there is a linearity between the tracks that is quite deliberate and that yes makes it very difficult to describe in terms of individual pieces of music on an album because that's not how it's composed well i mean when i was considering the two albums certainly and maybe this maybe this is just this is my mindset or because i'm aware of the nationalities of both the the composers if you like but i think they are very rooted in where their composers come from that this seems 
this seems much more Gallic. It seems yeah. much more French. And autobahn. I mean, it has it has the German in it. <laughs> yeah. So, it, but like the other parts of the album do feel much more German. Now, whether you've been influenced by the first track or not, or not but it, like certainly to me that this feels much more French. It feels more ethereal, less rooted. But that could I, what I what I would admit is that could well be my preconceptions coming to this. No, I think that's a very fair observation, actually. I think you are very astute there. So I don't take that as a criticism. It may be intended as one, but I, 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 yeah, I think that's fair play. It's it's not a criticism. It's, it's, it is just an observation that, yeah, it seems much more French. If, if you if you think that um, something being French is a criticism, then um, you, you may be more on the Farage side. <laughs> To be fair, his wife is German. <laughs> so he's probably banging to his craft work. <laughs> right, so I'm not going to do this on every track, but I do me who sampled stuff. Uh, and I've just got one to call, call out on this. So Oxygen Part 1 has been sampled seven times. The only one I want to call out. In 2015, Carly Rae Jepsen sampled it on her track, All That. Not an artist that I would immediately associate with sampling Jean-Michel Jarre tracks, but there you go. Did not expect that. That was not where I thought you were going. Nope, exactly. Yeah, I really like part one. I uh, I think it's, a, as I said, it's an arresting, it's a captivating start to the album, and uh, yeah, big fan. Okay, so then we move on to the imaginatively named part two. <laughs> And this piece starts uh, with a much more urgent and dramatic sound. And then you kind of, it gradually develops into a much more ambient backdrop. I, I, I think that's the, the, the way I would describe it. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to describe it, actually. And, and I think that urgency, that, that dramatic sound that starts it off is where... This is why I wanted to read that quote earlier on about in composing it with um, live performances in mind because right at the start of it, when when all the atmospheric, ethereal synths that underline most of the album disappear and you've just got that synth part dominating everything, I can picture myself in the live performance. The lights have gone down. The lasers are up. I'm seeing a fuck ton of dry ice. <laughs> well, no, exactly. Yeah, a fuck ton of dry ice. Lasers everywhere. I'm into it. It's got me. Again, it's it's a good transition from part one to part two. And um, yeah, I, I like it. Yes, it then gives way to, as you say, something far, far more atmospheric. I think there's some good foreshadowing here of, of what's on part four, which is the most famous part of this of, of the whole album. Mm-hmm. Again, there's the grand soundscapes that you get through the the atmospheric whooshing white noise that to me it's evocative of being in a barren wasteland the wind is whirling all around you sweeping you off your feet yeah really evocative of that and i think it, we talked about evoking visions of of things on on autobahn i think it's fair to do so here as well i have to say fair, fair enough so what do you think of part 2 so I found it quite easy to get kind of lost into the the background of it, and you kind of mm-hmm. it envelops you. And so I I liked it as a piece of music. It didn't it didn't blow me away, but yeah. I 
I wasn't uncomfortable in the space I was in, if you know what I mean. Okay, no, no, no. I, I yeah, I, I do know what you mean, and and I and I agree. If I had to criticize it, I would say that the second half is perhaps a bit too long. I think if it was thirty seconds, forty-five seconds shorter. That would be fine because there's not much variety. Once the rhythm section, if you like, the, the bass and the rhythm does kick in, doesn't change very much. So that, if I had to have one criticism, it would be that. I think you could shorten this and it wouldn't take anything away from the experience. So it's, it's funny you mentioned that it, it could do with being a bit shorter. I definitely made that note. For me, it could have lose, lost a minute and a half and I, I'd be all right with that. Fair enough. Uh, but no, I like it. Okay. So we move on to, um, unsurprisingly, part three. <laughs> Fan of linear storytelling is Jean-Michel Jarre. I was going to say, he wouldn't get on with Christopher Nolan, would he? <laughs> I mean, he fucking hates Tarantino. <laughs> but I do not understand. How can the main character be dead in this end of act? Do, but then at the end of Act 3 is alive. I don't know. It is illogical. And what is the wallet about? <laughs> Who is Zed? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I know people keep telling me that Zed is dead, but I do not understand. <laughs> Move on. This is ridiculously self-indulgent. <laughs> okay. So, yes, as we said, we move on to part three, and it has a much more interesting, like it's an interesting soundscape that's going on here. It has a kind of, I don't know, like I picked up sort of like Asian kinds of vibes to to the, mu- to the music that it, it reminded me of like kind of a Chinese opera kind of sound. No, I see, I see what you mean. I think, I think the discordant start is quite jarring. It takes you by surprise after what you've just heard on uh, on part two. What I'd say about when the main melody comes in is that you can absolutely hear the influence it had on a lot of European electronic acts through the 80s and the 90s. And I'd include Daft Punk in that. I mean, you seriously, go and listen to the soundtrack to Tron Legacy. And, and then listen to this off the back of it because it's there is such a direct influence there. Again, that sort of theremin type sound is there within this. It's interesting. This it it sounds quite different to everything else on the album. I would say. Well, it's it's got quite a it's got quite a sinister element to it. Like, and I can't really put my finger on what it is. But there's a sense of discomfort throughout the whole piece, really. Yep, I agree. I mean, it's the shortest track on the album, too. Three minutes, 16. It um, comes and it goes, you know. And that's, that's side one done. Okay. So, shockingly, we move from part three <laughs> onto part four. With which you might be familiar. You probably will be familiar. It's the most famous and recognisable piece from the album. It was released as a single. And, like, so we talked about the links between this album and Autobahn, and there weren't a huge number. So there is a there is a story that, during the creation of the album, a friend of uh, Jean-Michel Jarre asked him to create a piece of music 
to praise the extension of the A4, which is known as the East Highway. So essentially, this is his autobahn. Yeah, <laughs> yeah indeed. That's a good point. As you said, it, and it was what well, it was. It was used in a commercial to advertise, if you like, the opening of the extension of the A4 around Paris. It's been used in several commercials since then, including quite famously one for for Pepsi. You know, it did take on a a ubiquity, if you like. And, (laughs) well, the main riff is one that you cannot surely have avoided, particularly if you've ever been to an amusement arcade at an English seaside town (laughs) and gone on one of the um, grab-a-stuff toy games, because, like, (laughs) this is all over them. It is, though, isn't it? Come on. Yeah, it is. So, that melody, okay, it it owes a debt to Gershon Kingley's popcorn. It's the same melody, really, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But everyone knows this, surely. Yeah. Do you know what? Like, (laughs) so the note I made, um, I, I hadn't really put it together in relation to the note I'd made before it. Somehow the sound seems quite French compared to Autobahn. It's like a Franco Autobahn. Well, it is, isn't it? it? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, quite jokingly that, that you would expect that Jean-Michel Jarre has appeared alongside David Copperfield. Indeed. And I think this track is, is, is the reason for that. <laughs> yeah. So firstly, it was used on um, Alan Partridge when they had Tony Lemesme. That's it. I knew, I knew, I knew it. That's it. The, the hypnotist, Tony Lemesme. And then he starts throwing knives at him. So it was on there. But I think because it it is undoubtedly Jean-Michel Jarre's most well-known piece of music. And because, as we've already said, he became famed for his flamboyant live shows as did David Copperfield, in an entirely different milieu. Let's, you know, fair enough. I think that's one of the reasons you draw that comparison, as well as the the Partridge thing, obviously. That, yeah, it does have that sense of 80s pomp and circumstance around it. Yes. And I don't necessarily think that's the fault of the piece of music. No, unfortunately, it's tarnished by association or what it's been used in conjunction with. Yes. It has that kind of 80s pomposity that when the piece was actually crafted, it wasn't intended to be, but it kind of yeah. became that because of what Jean-Michel Jarre became in the 80s, really. Yeah, exactly. So uh, to to that, it, it became a sort of the, the electro version of Stairway to Heaven. So here's a quote from a an article in the Telegraph in 2008 about the album. As one of Jean-Michel Jarre's sort of long-term friends, Francis Rambert, he, he was working in a music shop when the album was released. And he says, if you enter the music store with keyboards at that time, you'd see all the young beginners trying to play Oxygen 4. A massive phenomenon was happening, which, you know, as anyone that's seen Wayne's World will know. No stairway. Denied. Denied. But it's absolutely true. As I said, my, in, in the 80s, my brother was banging to Jean-Michel Jarre and he was playing Oxygen. That, yeah, it is it is synonymous with a certain style that became quite... What's the word? It became passe very quickly. 
Thank you. That's exactly the phrase I'm looking for. Yeah, absolutely. But it's not the fault of the composition. I think it's a really good piece of music. It zips along at a fair old pace. You've got, again, coming back to what we joked about at the start, you've got a bossa nova rhythm preset on the synth. And it's great because it's just, that along with the bass line, the ding 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 it's a great bed to the track. And then, yeah, that retro-futuristic popcorn. Boo, 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 boo. It's a great piece of music. I love it. Okay. Do you have anything more to add? <laughs> I do have a couple of things to add, actually. Okay. So, in May of 2021, Music Radar listed it as number five in the list of the 40 greatest synth sounds of all time. But the main one, it's been covered several times, as one would expect. The only one I want to call out, and it's another one of those where you're never going to guess it, Hank Marvin. What? (laughs) Hank Marvin of the Shadows in 1993 covered Oxygen Part 4. Am I having a stroke? (laughs) No. No. I listened to it. It sounds exactly like you would expect a Hank Marvin cover of Oxygen Part 4 to sound. Yes, yes, exactly that, yes. (laughs) Not worth a listen. Well, fucking hell. Uh, That's all I've got to say. Okay, I'm going to move us on from Hank Marvin. So we move on to Part 5. Um, which has a, well, I mean, the, the way I described it is it has a slightly funereal church sound to the start. I mean, obviously, <laughs> it's some kind of weird space church. <clears throat> the first part with the monotonal Mellotron part and then the organ riff coming in gently sounds almost funereal. <laughs> So for um, Nintendo Switch fans, I was brought to the end of Super Mario Odyssey where you are having to uh, meet Bowser on a church on the moon to um, fight him. That's what came to mind when I first heard this piece of music. (laughs) So before we get to that part, though, I like the transition from part four to part five, the sort of the, the electronic bubbles and slurping sounds. I like that. Although it does sound like someone is taking a massive hit on a space bong. (laughs) Hit from the space bong. (laughs) So, first thing I want to say about this. This is the most Kraftwerk sounding track on the album. Particularly the first half of it. With that, as we said, funereal, sombre sounding melody. When the... You get to about four minutes of that and then... Again, that big booming bass synth part comes in almost almost like a fanfare. You can almost imagine that, that Mingna Merciless is is sat in his throne room <laughs> and uh, Dale Arden is being presented to, <laughs> to court. But don't worry, because um, Brian Blessed's on his way. Dive! <laughs> um, right, back to the song. So I like the way this is in two parts. This Again, two movements, if you like, of this track. You've got the first part, which we're talking about, was very sombre, very funereal. But then from about halfway through, five, five and a half minutes, it's a huge tonal shift. 
and the arpeggiated bass comes in to give it a much more urgent tone and feel for the second half. I mean, so I'm going to be very, very honest here that the second half of this song is, I was clinging on to this album. It's where it fucking, it's gone. I am Dave Bowman's uh, sort of co-astronaut who's knocked into space by Hal. I'm I'm gone. <laughs> so I made a note here saying like the song develops into a morass of sounds that are largely indistinguishable from each other. It's not that it's bad. It's just that I've no longer got a grip on this on the music. It's it's lost me, and so it's sort of washing over me. It's fine. I'm not having a bad time, but I'm not. I couldn't tell you anything after after the space church that happens in this song because I because I, I was lost. Interesting. Uh, so I don't. Well, it's not a question of don't agree. That's that was your response to to listen to it. Uh, mine is different. It's a, it's the longest track on the album. It's ten minutes long, and it it does have enough in there to keep me engaged all the way through. I think the melange to try and put a singular word on what you've described. Melange is better than morass. I think each individual part comes in at its own time, so you can appreciate one bit. You get used to that, then something else comes in on top of that. And maybe this is my familiarity with the album speaking. Mm-hmm. I really like part five. I think it's got two very distinct movements to it, both of which offer me something which nothing else on the album does. There is a clear juxtaposition both within the track and compared to what else you've got uh, on the other tracks. I like it. I, I can... Can I understand what you mean? Yeah, perhaps. I don't agree. Fair enough. But I think this is another one where you can see where the influence that it's had on, on other acts. Again, you, you listen to the second half in particular. The, some of the melodies that are, again, they're stacked on top of each other. That's fair. But the way it's structured, and the way those melodies come in and out, Daft Punk, definitely. The Chemical Brothers, but also the likes of Underworld and Left Field. There's no doubt in my mind they've drawn inspiration from this i'm not saying that this eclipses those because it doesn't but there's a lineage there there's a there's a, there's a yeah there's a lineage there i can't deny the legacy of it i can only go on my reaction to because i didn't just listen to it once because i thought that was maybe that i just heard it once and like it didn't grab me it's like when we were talking about um the Motown album, you said that, you know, the album lost you at, at various points. Yeah. yeah. My my attention's gone by now. I can't really explain it, but, like, it happened every time I listened to the album. And, unfortunately, it does kind of roll into part six. No, fair enough, fair enough. That's your opinion. That's your reaction to it. I can understand it, but that's not my reaction to it. So let's... Uh... Well, you said, and it carries on into part six. Shall we go on to part six? So, yeah, part six. So, <laughs> so sometimes we have hive mind. I'm going to guess that you probably don't have the same notes that I have, or at least my first initial note on this song. Go on. I feel sorry for the vol being put through the mangle at the start of the song. <laughs> no, we no. do not have the same. Because <laughs> that's what I heard. No, what I heard is the... Uh, so you're talking about the electronic squeaks. 
Yes. <laughs> that echo through the first minute or so, yeah? Yeah. That, to me, that's the seagulls cawing. Are they following the trawler? Well, they yeah, they may well be, because the, the white noise is the sound of waves crashing against the shore. I, I think you're being disingenuous there. I, I, You said it's lost your attention, so fine. Okay, I get it. I mean, an album at less than 40 minutes, there's questions about your attention span. <laughs> so I get it, but I think, I think you're being slightly disingenuous there. We praised Morning Walk, Morgan Spatzier Gang on Autobahn for the fact that it was electronically creating the sounds of the dawn. This is electronically recreating the sounds of being on a clifftop, hearing waves crashing against the cliffs, hearing seagulls flying around. And I think it's equally innovative. I think it's equally impressive. And that's all I'm going to say on the, the opening, at least. Look, as I as I said, and I was very honest, that the second half of part five lost me, and it unfortunately part six never pulls me back in. So, yes, it it it's a slightly flippant sort of line to take to take from it, but it never it never pulls me back in, and that's the thing. That's the difference between this and autobahn is that I di- I wasn't having a bad time. I just kind of. I stopped paying attention to it because it was washing over me. Okay, no fair. All right, f- fine. So two things on that. I'm gonna. So firstly, let me speak to what I think of part six. I don't think it's a great choice as a closer. I like all the constituent parts. The main riff is different from what we've heard before. But again, it's got that retro-futuristic sound. As I said, I, I like the way the soundscapes are created to evoke visions of what it's, uh, it's clearly supposed to represent. And it goes back to the ecological environmental themes that we mentioned when we talked about the album cover. But it's six and a half minutes long, and it doesn't really go anywhere. Unlike how I responded to part five, which has two distinct movements and does evolve this doesn't it's the same thing okay it starts as it finishes as well with the white noise coming in and out i can understand that you don't want to finish on part five but this does not leave me on an emotional high it leaves me feeling a little bit cold it leaves me feeling a little bit and what else can you give me so i i can understand your reaction to it because i've always felt about this And I think this is something that he often fell foul of. He had a great way of starting records big and grabbing your attention. But his albums often tail off. Mm -hmm. I I think that's a really good way of describing it, that he pulls you in with something big, something large, but he's, he's not capable of sustaining that interest. And that's the problem. That's my issue. I, I get that. I do get that. That's a fair point. The, but but the other thing I want to come to now, and it's a phrase you've used a couple of times, that it washed over you. I think that's kind of the point on this track in particular. And whilst I don't think it works, I think it, it speaks to what I mentioned earlier, that the album, it's written as a classical composition. That's that's how it's it's more analogous to something like that than, it, than, than Autobahn was. And so I think... At times, it is supposed to wash over you. I just don't think to end it in that way is the right thing to do. 
So I think I think that comes down to, and maybe this is a philosophical thing that we've come to the nub of it. Really, that to me, music is supposed to engender a reaction. It's not supposed to just fill the fill the void. And there are elements of this album that leave me cold, and it is just filling the void of noise for me. And and that sounds really harsh. Because I can, I can see the craft. I can see the ability. I can see what I can see what he's trying to do. But if it just washes over me, then it's failed as a piece of art for for me. And I know that's a very personal reaction. That if I don't dislike it or like it, then it's essentially beige. It's fucking Coldplay. Oh, I think you're conflating things here. Not engendering an emotional response is different to something, in my view, that you say is washing over you, that you can you allow to occur around you, okay? I agree with you on music, which just leaves you cold. Coldplay is exactly one. Razor, like we've mentioned before, same thing, okay? I don't think that's what you've described here. From what you were talking about there, about it occurring around you, about, about it washing over you, do you like Pink Floyd? Yeah. Do you like the album Wish You Were Here? Yes, I do. Do you like Shine On You Crazy Diamond? Yeah, I do. What's the difference? The difference is that they engendered an emotional response that this, particularly towards the end, just didn't. It just... This is unfair to use this phrase. To me, it is Muzak. Now, I don't think... I don't think it is music, but the reaction it has to me is that it is merely filling a space. Okay, fine. I, I don't agree. Like, I, I don't think it is music. I can see that Jean-Michel Jarre is a very talented musician and it's not, it's not lift music. It's just that it just occurred around me and I didn't, particularly towards the end, I just wasn't engaged and that's a problem for me because that's what music to me is supposed to do. It's supposed to it's supposed to engender something, a feeling, a thought, a process. On that point, we are agreed entirely. I wonder if this is merely a difference in or as a result of familiarity in that I have it with this album and you don't. Yeah. And therefore I am prejudiced by history you are prejudiced by coming to it cold. And what I will what I will readily accept. And potentially some preconception. Yeah, yeah. So I was about I was about to speak to that is that it's entirely plausible that my thought process, my preconception of the laser show nonce, you know, like that somewhere in my subconscious is playing whilst I'm listening to it. That it's entirely plausible that. Yeah, okay. I mean, um, I think we, we, we agree to disagree on that, but I think we understand where we are each coming from. Uh, that said, I don't think part six is particularly great. So, Oh my God, we've actually had a fucking clash. <laughs> yeah, indeed. How long, how long into the uh, pod have we got to we actually had a proper clash? Yeah, we had some clashes last time out when we were going through the Motown Christmas album. There was... Anyway. But yeah, it's, it's nice... That we have some debate. And and the thing is, that was we talked about that for a long time as well. Yeah, you know, like we we actually got into the long grass of why we have different opinions on it. So let's go on to what the critics thought. 
So the critics were not favourable towards this album. No, they were not. <laughs> no. So Angus McKinnon of the NME described the album as another interminable cosmic cruise. The German spacer's Tangerine Dream mapped this part of the electronic galaxy aeons ago. ago. The album's infuriatingly derivative explore its prime influences instead. Music Week said, um, unfortunately, Jar has produced a work that is ponderous in its self-conscious musicality. He definitively uh, wears his art on his sleeve. Unlike Oldfield, he never stands back and laughs at his own creation. He's heavy throughout and his influences continually jog the elbow, particularly the lugubrious touches of Marla and the almost continuous back underpinning. Some interest will be generated, but the album is not really suited to our insular and musically anti-intellectual Anglo-Saxon island. I mean, we are anti-intellectual in this island, so, you know, he's got a point there. Well, actually, he has, but his point is not the point he thinks it is. I think both of those speak to the snobbery of the British music press. The continuous back underpinning, lugubrious touches of Marla. Yeah, as I said, that's exactly the point. Where does he come from? What is it? And and these tiresome comparisons of Mike Oldfield can fuck off. That is really lazy. Unlike Oldfield, he never stands back and laughs at his own creation. Nor did fucking Mike Oldfield stand back and laughs at his own creation. So much so that he decided to make a fucking sequel to his own album. I mean, so did Jean-Michel Jarre, as we'll talk about in a bit. So, okay. But the negative comparisons of both Kraftwerk and Jean-Michel Jarre with Mike Oldfield, really great with me. It speaks to British exceptionalism. I'm sorry, but it absolutely does. It really fucking winds me up. And whilst I've, you know, I've I've expressed my view of the, on this album, it's really lazy to compare it to Mike Oldfield. I, I mean, that's like comparing David Guetta to the Chemical Brothers because they're both <laughs> electronic artists. They, they are very, very fucking different electronic artists. They are indeed exactly that. And and to go back to the NME review, explore its prime influence instead. Tangerine Dream mapped this part of the Electronic Galaxy aeons ago. I quite like Tangerine Dream. I'm not here to, to completely slag them off. It's not easy listening, though. Far from it. It is really hard to penetrate Tangerine Dream unless you really want to get into it. Do you know what I mean? It's... Whereas, as we've already said, everyone knows Oxygen Part 4. It is a perfectly crafted pop tune in its own right. So, it's like, typical fucking enemy hipster bollocks, that, for me. Okay, before I pass it over to, to you to refer to his knobbiness, um, I will reference a positive review from uh, Robin Smith of the record mirror in which he stated it's a pretty it's pretty tough to communicate warmth through such music and the end result is usually stilted but Jean-Michel Jarre has laid down a variety of forms joined together by cohesive lines a re- retrospective review by Jim Brenholtz from All Music stated that it is one of the original e-music albums I mean I have problem with that phrasing but you know and that it has withstood the test of time and the evolution of digital electronica yeah, which is which is a really nice uh, way of putting it. 
So you said before you hand over to me for his nobbiness. Um, I have no his nobbiness this week. He has not reviewed this album. Probably a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, perhaps that speaks to its... I mean, this is clearly an album which is hugely popular in Europe, but perhaps not in America. Okay. So should we discuss the legacy of this album then? Yes, let's. I mean, what you can say immediately is that it was a huge, huge commercial success. And it established Jean-Michel Jarre as a huge star. And he could afford to do the big shows that he wanted He wanted to do. Well, exactly that. So, And it was, as he said, it was almost overnight. So he followed it up in 78 with Equinox, which whilst it wasn't as successful as, as Oxygen, it still sold multiple millions of copies. As you said then about big shows, in 79, he, he played a concert at the Place de la Concorde in Paris to celebrate Bastille Day. That was attended by over a million people, which at the time was a record for attendance at a musical performance. As you said, it set the template for his live shows. It allowed him the platform to do what he wanted to do, and like it or not... It was an incredibly popular and an incredibly successful way in which he, he, he got his music across to the world. So would you like a completely pointless fact? Go on. So you mentioned his music going to the world. So um, in 1981, the British Embassy gave Radio Beijing copies of Oxygen and Equinox, which became the first pieces of foreign music to be played on Chinese national radio. And he became the first Western musician to play in China since the revolution. Okay, so yes, he was the first Western musician to be officially invited to perform in the People's Republic of China. The first performance in Beijing on the 18th of October 1981 was basically attended by mostly officials from the Chinese Communist Party. Before that concert began, (laughs) the, um, the technical crew basically realised that they didn't have enough power to supply the arena and the stage and all the lasers and stuff he wanted to. So what did the Chinese officials do, Kev? They decided to cut power to um, the surrounding districts. (laughs) That is a factual statement. Let's move on. Okay, so some facts about Jean-Michel Jarre's live shows, which became legendary. So we've already talked about him playing to over a million people in the Place de la Concorde in 79. In 1986, he beat that record. He played to one and a half million people in Houston, Texas. So the Americans clearly did respond to his music at some point, because Christ, that's a lot of folk. In July of 1990, to celebrate the 200th anniversary of the French Revolution, which for some reason he celebrated it on the 201st anniversary (laughs) of the French Revolution, but okay, fine. (laughs) He played a gig at La Défense in Paris to a crowd of two and a half million people. I mean, what? Two and a half million people? I'm sorry. I have to I have to interject and say what he he later did in 1991 because it's fucking great. Please continue. So he later promoted a concert near the pyramids of Teotihuacan in Mexico to be held during the solar eclipse of the 11th of July 1991. However, with only weeks to go, important equipment had not arrived 
and the sinking in the Atlantic Ocean of a cargo ship containing the purpose-built pyramidal stage and other technical and financial problems made staging the concert impossible. Jar's disappointment was so severe that he could not cope with Mexican food for two years. (laughs) Couldn't stomach a burrito. I'm not even going to comment on that. That's just going straight on Twitter. That's fucking magnificent. I've got nothing to say. Uh, Okay. In 1997, he played a concert in Red Square to celebrate Moscow's 850th birthday to an estimated crowd of over three and a half million people. I mean, Kev, you've been to Red Square. I haven't. Can you fit three and a half million people into Red Square? I I wouldn't have said so. (laughs) I'd say it would be a tight squeeze. (laughs) It's a big square, but like... I mean... This is Russia, so is this like Russian election numbers? <laughs> no, maybe, well, again, maybe you're thinking of Russia, but not in the right kind of way. So maybe it was like a nesting doll. So for every person, there was five people within them. <laughs> maybe so. Uh, anyway, that is recorded in the Guinness Book of World Records, so it's verified. Also, why a city keep inviting Jean-Michel Jarre to do performances? Like going, oh yeah, loads of people are going to turn off for you, lad. Because lasers and the stones were busy. <laughs> and Queen went touring. <laughs> no, they were playing Sun City. <laughs> um, well, just looking on Jean-Michel's Wikipedia, he also played Sun City. I, d- I don't think it was during apartheid, though. <laughs> well, fair enough. <laughs> right. So, Jean-Michel Jarre, he's still recording, he's still performing. To date, he has released 21 studio albums, including Oxygen 2 in 1997 and Oxygen 3 in 2016. So, very much milking the success of this album. Mm-hmm. Um, so, despite all that commercial uh, success and the phenomenal attendances at his live shows, he has never received certainly in the UK, never received critical acclaim. Jean-Michel Jarre himself, in an interview with The Telegraph in 2008, he said Oxygen was a UFO arriving during the period of disco, punk and the Sex Pistols. And as we've already said, the 80s happened and he very much became seen as part of that culture of yuppie excess. So, I say, at least in the UK, he's never really had any credibility as a serious artist which I think is harsh. It is harsh for someone that, that is so... He is he is massively popular, no matter what. But, you know, he does things and he performs at things that doesn't necessarily give him cachet or, or cool. So just looking on his Wikipedia, he performed in Riyadh to celebrate the 88th Saudi National Day. In January 2019, HSBC revealed their new musical identity composed by Jean-Michel Jarre. It's shit like that doesn't help. No, it doesn't help. You're right. Okay, and that sort of undercuts the point I'm about to make. (laughs) I mean, the Saudi stuff's not great. I've got a theory, because as we've already seen, the British music press in particular was highly scathing about this album. And I have a theory as to why 
and it's multifaceted. One of them is the uh, francophobic, if you like, side of things. But mainly, what's the difference between the way that Kraftwerk were perceived and the way that Jean-Michel Jarre was perceived? Yes, Kraftwerk came first, but they weren't the first. I actually think it comes down to this. One of these artists was triumphed by David Bowie. The other wasn't. And I I honestly think that is a significant factor. At this time in particular, in the 1970s, if Bowie was saying something was good, then that was it. You were untouchable. Honestly, I think that has something to do with it. I mean, without question that having Bowie's seal of approval is going to help. I think genuinely that the 80s jar and what he represents, that excess, that bombast, that pomposity, you know, that's the first thing that came to my mind when you mentioned us doing this clash. And unfortunately, it has it has established that idea and concept in anyone who's who has an interest in music, you will you will be aware of Jean-Michel Jarre and that kind of thing. And if you like that sort of thing, then fine, it doesn't affect mm-hmm. you. But if you're if you don't like that sort of thing, that kind of presentation, then you're gonna kick again it and it's gonna influence and I and I freely admit that it's entirely plausible that it has played a part in how I felt about this album, that I had a preconception about the artist. Fair enough. Very honest. Uh, and with that, well, I just want to leave the final word on the album to Jean-Michel Jarre himself, who said in that interview with The Guardian that we have quoted many times, he said, no matter what I do, I'm defined by oxygen. It is tattooed on my skin. But that's okay. Fair enough. Fuck it. He made a load of money off it. So, you know, I suppose he doesn't really give a shit. <laughs> and none of it went to Richard Branson. So, again, something he has on Mike Oldfield. So, there's a bonus. Okay. Shall we do best song, worst song? Okay. So, as I led us through this, then it is your turn. All right. I'll do my best song first. And it's, it is it, it is clearly part four. I, I really like part two. I really like part five. I know you don't, but I do. But part four, although it may not have been the intention when it was composed, it is a brilliant pop tune. It's four minutes. It's really catchy. Bounces along at a hell of a pace. And is absolutely synonymous with him as an artist. So it's by far and away the best track on this album. The worst... It's part six. It just doesn't work as a closer. It just leaves me a little bit cold, as I said earlier. How about you? Okay, so I'm going to be relatively quick on this because I'm going ditto-ditto. Part four is the best song. It's the most accessible. It's got the best tune to it. It's, it is it is the greatest bit of this album, and it, there's a reason why it was so successful and so popular. Um, and part six is, yeah, part five had lost me. Part six absolutely cast me adrift. So we debated it for 10 minutes, and yet we both agree it's the worst song on the album. <laughs> yeah, it's just how much I dislike it in comparison to you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, all right, okay. Um, 
I guess it's time to score these albums then, isn't it? Yeah, so as it's your choice, the traditional album clash methodology is that you go first and then finish on the second album. Okay, so Autobahn. So let me just start by saying that this isn't my favourite Kraftwerk album, as I said last week. I think the run of four that followed it, Radioactivity, Trans-Europe Express, The Man Machine, Computer World, are a stronger run of four albums, as I've heard from any artist. And seriously, both you, the listener, and you, Kev, listen to Trans-Europe Express and The Man Machine. They are fantastic albums. They are masterpieces of electronic music amongst the best that the Chemical Brothers or any of those acts have ever produced. Okay, anyway, I'm not talking about those two. I'm talking about Autobahn, sorry. Autobahn set the template. It set the ball rolling. It started the movement as far as I'm concerned. And whilst it may not have been the first electronic album, it was still completely different to anything that had come before. It blended experimental innovative sounds with catchy melodies and that is why Autobahn as a single became so popular because it was a great pop song simple as that and that's something Tangerine Dream could never lay claim to okay much as I like them they never created anything that was remotely catchy on top of all that it is another album that just deserves so much recognition for the influence it had. it Pop music was never the same after Autobahn. It's as simple as that. It is an all-time classic. And I'm... I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. It isn't perfect. There are better Kraftwerk albums. But the influence this one had, it started it all. 9 out of 10 for Autobahn. How about you? Okay. You've pretty much filled, uh, you know, a, f- a huge part of what I had sort of in my mind to say that the influence of this album, the sonic dexterity, the clever, like it's, it's a clever album, and how it absolutely pushed the envelope for electronic music and the lasting legacy that it had on artists that I love. It's not going to get a shit score. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and there's only one song on the album that I I described as not my favorite, but I could see what it was doing, which was Mitternacht. But like, mm. Comment and Melody Two is beautiful, as is the last track, the opening side of the of the album, mm. Autobahn itself is just a magnificent piece of music that is so evocative. So. It's a brilliant piece of work. It's not perfect. Um, I am going to listen to more craft work and I'm definitely going to take up Tim's suggestions and I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. Okay, so that gives Autobahn 17, if I am not mistaken. That is correct. Okay, which means that Jean-Michel Jarre has quite the task ahead of him if he's going to win this clash. I suspect I know where it's going. <laughs> where are you going on it? Go on. So I think you're correct in your assumptions. So I came into this blind. I accept that there may be an unconscious bias 
in the way that I reacted to it. But whilst I enjoyed the the opening movements of the album, that it gradually lost me. And by the end, I had no interest in what was going on. And of the albums that we've done on Album Clash, there's been very few that have completely lost me in, in such a way. I recognise that there is an immense, immense ability in it. There's this creativity, but I can only react to how it made me feel, how I responded to it. And so I could mark it harsher, but I don't think that's fair because whilst I may have my opinion on what he became or how he represented himself, the man is musically talented and you can't deny that. And Oxygen Part 4 is is a very good pop song, a la Popcorn. So I'm going to come down with a 5 out of 10. Oh, wow. So uh, that means that my score is irrelevant because I ain't going to give it 13 out of 10. <laughs> um, so, also, Barna's already won. But for posterity, I will give you my review and my score. So, I first heard this when I was four or five years of age. And so, unlike you, I have a lot of history with this. It's been with me for a very long time. And even having gone 20-odd years without listening to it at all, as I mentioned earlier on, when I revisited it, I was taken aback by how much I enjoyed it, actually. It sounds simultaneously very much of its time and yet ahead of its time. It is far from perfect. It is quite flabby in places. But every track has got something to offer. Even part six, of which I'm not a great fan because I think it's a... A cold way to end. I really do think that there is an element of snobbishness and of arrogance uh, as to why Jean-Michel Jarre is so derided, where where Kraftwerk are so are so lauded. I, and I I like both acts, and I am much more a fan of Kraftwerk than I am of Jean-Michel Jarre. Let me say that. And I agree with what you've said that it also has a lot to do with what he became associated with and what he wanted to become associated with. So, you know, it's not entirely blameless, but I do really think there's a an element of snobbishness around it. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't... All I'll say on that is he, he was far from the only artist in the 80s and 90s that took things to excess and that, that did things you wouldn't want them associated with. We've already mentioned Queen, for God's sake. Anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll put that to a side. It's a really strong album. I'm really glad that I chose it for us to review. And I'm glad that you have listened to it and have tried to score it. I think five is really harsh. Although I accept that the score I'm about to give it is certainly one which has an element of nostalgia and of reminiscence within it. But for me, it's a strong seven out of ten. Okay. And so... Whilst it was never going to win, even when I announced this as a clash, it was never going to be Kraftwerk. It's well-deserving for me of a 7 out of 10. That gives it 12, so it's not even close. It's been thrashed by the Germans. The French have been beaten into submission and surrender by, by the Germans. <laughs> Their sonic Maginot line has been breached. <laughs> Indeed it has. 
But there you go. I wanted to stick up for Oxygen because uh, I think it deserves it. But even so, it's not Autobahn. It's not Craft no. because, yeah, there you go. Okay. Okay. I hope you guys enjoyed that. That's the first chapter in our season of Electronica. What is the next chapter, Kev? So we are going back to our safe space of the late 90s. <laughs> and we're going to pick up with two albums that brought dance music into the festival scene. And two artists that I know that both me and Tim have seen. And two artists that we are very, very keen upon. So your homework for next week will be 1997's Dig Your Own Hole by the Chemical Brothers. <laughs> and it will face You've Come a Long Way Baby by Fat Boy Slim of 1998. Get in. Oh, brilliant stuff. Uh, excited. <laughs> I thought you'd enjoy that. Uh, and as I sit here today, I, I couldn't tell you which is going to win. It's a toughie. It is a toughie. It is a toughie. All right, but that is that is for the next couple of weeks. Great stuff. Okay, Kev, as it's now 2022, honest, it really is, <laughs> as we record this, <laughs> how in the future can people keep in touch with us? So there is a story in the past which is knocking around and trending on Twitter around sort of just before Christmas where people um, trying to protect themselves from 5G have bought themselves necklaces, which have then been found to be radioactive. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's okay. We're going to come back to this in a second, because I've not heard about this. It's the uh, second trending topic on Twitter tonight. Yeah, anti-5G necklaces found to be radioactive. That is the most deliciously ironic thing I think I've ever heard. What do they have in them that is radioactive? I've not clicked further into the uh, BBC uh, article, but I'm fairly confident <laughs> that, that that is accurate. Magnificent. Brilliant. Oh, so whilst people are uh, reading about the misfortune of morons... How might they keep in touch with us on Twitter? So whilst you may be purchasing your radioactive necklace, you can also check out our Twitter page and our excellent playlist, which is our pinned tweet, um, at Clash Album. You can check out our carefully curated excellent content on Instagram. Clash Album is where you need to go. Or if you are resolutely old school and you want to send us an electronic mail, you can send it to albumclash at gmail.com. Boom. Great stuff. Well, I'm going to go and check out Radioactive Necklaces because I haven't heard that story before now. <laughs> As I always say, guys, thanks for listening. I mean, if you haven't already subscribed to the show, please do so. It's just one click, literally one click, one small movement of your index finger to subscribe to us. Leave a rating, leave a review, preferably five stars. Say we're amazing. Or just, leave, as we said before, leave five stars and say you're a bunch of dicks. We don't care. <laughs> Get in touch. All that stuff. All we can say at this point is that we we neither know nor can confirm uh, whether Sting has um, appropriated any of the radioactive necklaces. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, right. Thank you for listening. Just a reminder, for next week's show, you need to listen to the Chemical Brothers 
Dig Your Own Hole from 1997. For two weeks' time, you need to listen to... To You've Come a Long Way, Baby by Fatboy Slim from 1998. And, uh, yeah, thank you very much for listening. We will see you next week. Until then, I have, as always, been Timothy. And I was once Kat. <laughs> Great stuff. Thanks for listening, guys. Take care. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Ta-ra. Bye-bye.